Okay, May 8th, 2022, that was the Sunday that we started this series in Philippians on the text that Jamie just uh, so eloquently read. And it's been a really fun series. Um, I think one of the things that's endeared me to this book, one of the reasons I think that Philippians has been such a popular book, not only in the modern church, but in the early church as well, it was so well circulated, is not just because it has all these quotable lines in it, but because I think it, it, it really addresses a lot of the nitty-gritty parts of human life, like things like anxiety and fear and um, insecurity about the future, and, and, it, and it deals with these things in a very nuanced and pastoral way. And in, in that sense, even for an ancient letter written so long ago, it speaks to us, and it's been speaking to me throughout this whole time. And I think another thing that's helpful for me is that the guy who wrote it, the Apostle Paul, you know, he's not some like self-help guru with a pressed suit and a plastic smile who, you know, is just saying like, just think better thoughts and your life will be fine. And then he you know, gets in his luxury car and goes to the next town and says the same spiel over and over again. I mean, this, this man, Paul, is writing from a prison cell he, he's given his life to these people and to the work of the gospel. He has, for me, he has credibility. Well, today we're gonna conclude our series in the book of Philippians. I'm a little sad. I'm a little happy about what's coming next, too. So um, we're gonna read the final part of Paul's letter, and we're gonna explore it together. It's gonna tie in, if you paid attention to last week, it's gonna tie into what we talked about last week, and if you didn't, it stands alone on its own as well. We'll be fine. But if you can stand, I would encourage you to do so as, um, as we read this final part. Philippians 4, 10 through 23. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live with prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
If you remember last week, or if you have your Bible with you, you can look at verse four. That was the first verse of the passage last week that we focused on, and it says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, and what we see as we pick up this new passage this week is a tie-in with that word rejoice, that Paul says, I'm rejoicing in in this. And he says at the end of last week's passage in Philippians 4, 9, he writes, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God, and the God of peace will be with you. And so he he calls for them to rejoice in the midst of hardship. And then he says, follow my example as I rejoice in the midst of hardship. And what example is that precisely? Well, here we see Paul rejoicing, and he rejoices even though he's in prison. And he rejoices even though his immediate future is uncertain. I mean, he didn't really know, would he be released? Would he be executed? Would he live forever in prison? Let's remember that Paul, you know, I know he's like a biblical author, and he does these amazing things, and we kind of think, I don't know what you think, but sometimes I I put Paul up here as he's something other than we are. But Paul is a human being. He's a regular guy. He's not divine. He's not somehow immune to pain or immune to disappointment. His whole life, all of his plans that he'd made, all of his ability to be with friends and to be free and to go about the mission that God had called him to, all that was put on hold against his will. How can he rejoice? While a prisoner, Paul is able to write, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Contentment. In Paul's world, first century Greco-Roman culture, that word contentment was loaded. I don't know about what you think when you think of contentment, But what the average person in Paul's audience would think is something very fixed because Stoic philosophers taught that being content was the same as being self-sufficient. In fact, listen to this Greek word for contentment. Autarkis. Do you hear the word autonomy? Autarkis in that word? Contentment, autarkis. Autonomy, being self-sufficient, that's what the Greek philosophers were teaching. Listen to the way of contentment as described by Epictetus, that's a fun word to say, do you wanna say it? Epictetus, yeah. So he, one of his pupils writes in the, in the writing discourse, this is how to be content according to this Stoic philosopher. Begin with a cup or a household utensil. In, in fact, imagine your favorite coffee mug at home or kids, if you don't have a coffee mug, your favorite breakable vessel. So he writes, begin with a cup or a household utensil. If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. This is where it gets sinister. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Go on to yourself. If you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. This was a description of the path to contentment. It sounds a little bit like the path to being a sociopath, but that's another topic. Um, For the Stoic, 
Contentment was found in detaching oneself from feelings, sometimes emotions, and very suspicious of the heart. And for the cynic, this was played out oftentimes in the abolishment of all but the most basic physical possessions. But that lifestyle, very much like a Jedi Knight too, right? But like that lifestyle never really works. And the reason it doesn't really work is because you and I are made in the image of God and we're made to be physical and to have chemicals running through us that give us emotions and desires and longings and feelings. Now, do we get those passions and desires warped and put out of place all the time? Absolutely. But the answer is not to deny ourselves feelings and attachments. The answer, I think Paul's gonna say, is to submit those things so that they're rightly ordered, so that we desire the things that God desires, right? And that we're passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Notice that Paul does not uh, find content me, contentment only in want. That would be kind of the stoic way, like you're content when you don't have any attachments. But in this very text, he says, I also find contentment in abundance. Now that would be, that would break all the rules of the stoic vision. So that's kind of the world he's speaking into when he's talking about contentment. Now what about our world? Unlike ancient Greece, Americans define contentment in general way differently. Um, rather than detaching from the world, we seek contentment by having it all, right? I want it all. I want my cake and to eat it too. That is an American saying. You can see all this type of thinking in the great American myth that if you work hard enough, if you follow your heart, you can be successful. And self-sufficient, there's a commonality, and wealthy and powerful. The American myth tells us that contentment is yours for the taking if you have the right attitude and you do the right stuff. Follow your heart is the Walt Disney gospel. Isn't that like the main point of all those cartoon movies? Like, just follow your heart. Sorry, Emma. <laughs> but it's true, it breaks down so easily. Um, if you follow your heart, you'll be truly happy, truly content. But the American myth is just that. It's pretty much a lie. Some of the highest suicide rates and drug addiction rates are among the middle and upper classes in our nation. Addiction in affluent neighborhoods is often higher than in less affluent neighborhoods in our cities. That's just numbers and facts. So for the stoic and the cynic, contentment looks like abandoning all attachments to the material world. For the American dream, contentment looks like the self-made individual who follows their heart to secure their own contentment. But both of those approaches leave us wanting more. The secret to contentment, argues Paul, isn't abandoning desire, and it's not chasing every desire you feel. Oh man, I would be in a lot of trouble if I followed every desire I ever felt. The secret to contentment, argues Paul, it's to desire the way of Jesus, to desire the way of loving God with all we are and loving our neighbors as, your, as ourselves, even as in Paul's case, when those neighbors are your prison guards or your cellmates or even the emperor whose policies put you in jail. The secret to contentment, says Paul, 
isn't desiring the right stuff. Remember, the gospel is supposed to be good news. So if you just, if you just rolled your eyes, at like, oh yeah, just line up your desires with what Jesus wants, you were right to just roll your eyes if that's where I were to leave this sermon. That would be bad news. Because what it would be saying is, hey, all you gotta do is line up your desires and your passions with what Jesus wants and you'll find contentment. Okay, good luck with that. Everybody would fail. That would be very bad news. That's not the gospel. And that's not what Paul says is the secret. The secret is that whether in humble means or in abundance, he can do all things, meaning he can be content in all things through Christ who strengthens him. That's the gospel. That's the good news, is that healthy dependence on Jesus uh, is the way to live after Jesus. Let let me just pause to state the obvious. Philippians 4.13, which reads, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is one of the most quoted and misapplied verses in scripture. Athletes in post-game interviews, right? Just won the championship. I, I knew it. It says in the Bible, you can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? Well, what about all the other guys praying on the other team? Uh, I've heard contestants in American Ninja Warrior more than once, like, make it up the wall or whatever. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Someone quitting their job to follow their heart. Well, do you have, do you have a, a plan? Uh, no, no, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Uh, somebody trying as a really sick jump who they haven't, what they haven't practiced hard enough to make it. Mountain biking, skiing, skateboarding, you fill in the blank. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. I'm not sure that that's what that means. Don't don't do it. (laughs) And all that stuff is well-intentioned. I'll tell you what, I I give a lot of grace to people who think that way because at least they're recognizing God's presence in their lives. I mean, that's, that's awesome. But that's not, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that he can do all things with rejoicing because God's power makes him content in all things. It's God's strength to help us endure in all things. That's the context of this passage. And I just am wondering, because I know for me, I was wondering as I was reading this passage, you know, it's an important aspect when we read scripture, not just to study it and like understand what it meant, but like, so what? And I just wonder, is there an area of your life where you're experiencing true discontent? Maybe it's in a relationship or something with your school or job. Maybe you're looking at your life and it just doesn't look like the life that you had imagined it might look like when you were five years old younger or 10 years younger or 50 years younger. Maybe it's just not what you thought it would be and there's discontent there. You know, in the realm of spiritual formation, which is what we're about, the feeling of discontent can often tell us something about ourselves. Sometimes when we feel uneasy about life, it provides an opportunity to experience the guidance of God. Is it possible that our circumstances are not the the only cause of our discontent, but maybe it's an issue of my heart or your heart? Okay, 
Back to the story. Paul is a traveling apostle who wants to spread the good news of Jesus to the world. That's his like main thing with his life. And it would be so easy for him to be discouraged while he's in prison because it appears that his whole calling and all of his plans are completely ruined. But God's power has begun to rightly order Paul's desires and his eyes are opened to God's purpose for him in that place and in those circumstances. There's three examples of, in this passage of how God's power impacted God to do all things, to rejoice in all things, even in those circumstances. And the first one is that he's writing this letter in the first place. And he's writing to encourage and to bless the Philippian church. Paul would have much rather been out on the road spreading the good news of Jesus, but his circumstances took that away, but they then provided him with lots and lots of time. And he took that time to write to the churches that he planted and to encourage them and to guide them and to share his life with them. That is one of the ways that we see God's power to do all things, right, to endure in any circumstance. That's one example of how it bore fruit in Paul's life. The second is that he can't leave. So what does he do? He shares the good news with the people around him in the prison. It's like, well, now I'm stuck. I always wanted to go to Rome, actually. This isn't how I imagined I would get there, and I'm not actually touring any of the cool sites, but I'm in Rome. And now he's surrounded not only by other prisoners, but by influential people. I know this is hard to get our minds around, but sometimes certain slaves in the Roman Empire had more status than some free merchant class people. And so you've got high-end people um, working in Caesar's household that are hearing Paul and checking in on Paul and asking him questions, and he's telling them all about this guy, Jesus. And some of these people in the household of Caesar hear the gospel of Jesus, and they begin to follow him. And they begin to follow Jesus to the point that at the end of his letter to the Philippians, the part that I I read just a few minutes ago, he sends greetings from the followers of Jesus from Caesar's household to the Philippians. Jesus strengthened Paul not only to endure, but to have a new vision for how he could be God's agent even while in prison. No wonder Paul is saying things like, he can do all things through him who strengthens him, to endure in any circumstance. You know, you might be living a life that you never planned to live in a way you didn't imagine with circumstances you never asked for. And some of you have gone through extremely difficult circumstances. And this is not, don't hear this calling of Paul or what I've said thus far as a callous way of making lemonade out of the lemons that life gives you. Kick me off the stage if I ever say junk like that. The God who is with us, Emmanuel, is caring and compassionate. He suffered for us. He suffers with us. And the point of all of this isn't that we should get our act together and figure out how to be as good as Paul was. 
The point is that Jesus loves us and can work in and through us even in our hard times. This leads us to our third example. Paul's desires were shaped by God's strength, not only to encourage the Philippians, but to challenge them to keep maturing in their Christian faith. And primarily, he encouraged them toward generosity. And this is where, I don't know if you've read this part of the letter before, or even when you heard me read it, you're like, that's so weird. I wonder if he's gonna say anything. But part of this letter that's so extremely confusing from a 21st century Western cultural perspective is that Paul kind of comes off as a jerk on a surface reading of this passage, right? Um, Like, it kind of goes like this. Paul receives some financial help from this relatively poor church in Philippi, and he seems to say, like, hey, I got your gift, and now that you revived your concern for me, it's been a while, not that I needed your gift, because I can be content in anything. You know, I, I don't have to have a lot, or I could have a lot. It doesn't really matter. I've learned how to be content, so I don't really need your gift, but still, thanks for sending it. I mean, it's sort of what it sounds like when you just read it on the surface. Is Paul the king, then, of backhanded compliments? I mean, maybe he's not, like, as content as he comes off. Maybe he's just being passive-aggressive. Well, let's remember that Paul is not writing from 21st century Cascadia. And in fact, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't know what passive-aggressive means. I'm imagining Paul's more East Coast than us, and he's very capable in other places in the Bible of telling people exactly what he thinks when he's angry or frustrated. So I don't think he's being passive-aggressive. That would be a first and a last that we would ever see him do that. So what gives? Why this weirdness? Well, this is a deep rabbit hole that I'm not going to take you on. You can ask me about it later, but I have to say something about it, right? So in the ancient Greco-Roman world, friendships didn't look at all like what we think of as friendships. Friendships in Paul's day were built on reciprocity. I scratch your back, you scratch my back, we're in it together as long as you keep scratching my back and I keep scratching your back. For example, in our neighborhood, it's completely normal. It's probably in your neighborhood, too, and a lot of us are in the same neighborhood, so you know what I'm talking about. It's completely normal for people to borrow each other's garden tools or power equipment. Um, someone gets a, a few yards of compost in the springtime, and they share it with their neighbors, right? It's just what you do. You bake cookies, you make extra, you bring them to the neighbor. Uh, the kid selling lemonade down the street, you always support them, and you give way more than you need to give for the lemonade, right? It's just, it's just like it's what we do. We're neighborly, we're friendly, um, that sort of 21st century American relating to each other. But not so at all in Paul's day. In those days, if a person loaned something, for example, or had you over for dinner, or helped you to plow your field, you would be expected to return that favor, maybe not the exact favor, but the same value of favor to that person. Now, this could get complicated, Because what if someone with more financial means or more social power invited you over for a fancy dinner? And you knew you couldn't repay them. You couldn't have the same caliber as guests if they would have. That would all be tallied up. You couldn't offer the same quality of food as they could offer. And so you had to make a decision. You either had to gracefully decline saving face for yourself and saving face for them in a very elaborate dance of pleasantries and words why you can't make it or you would be in their debt and sometimes that would be to your benefit 
Um, if you know, a very influential person has you in their debt, then that's okay. That's just the relationship, and you're called friends. But it's a very clear power differential, and that's how relationships worked. And what Christianity does is say that's not how relationships work in the church. That's not how we relate to each other as followers of Jesus. And so what Paul is careful now, now this is why it all matters, because Paul is careful to recognize the gift that the Philippians give him, but at the same time, not to put himself in the debt of the Philippians. And instead of doing that Greco-Roman reciprocity thing, he does two things. First of all, he says, thank you. No one in the ancient world really said thank you. They would praise you publicly. Like Chuck gave something nice to me. He turned a wood bowl or something like that. I, it wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say thank you to Chuck. I would, what I would do is I would tell the world. So I would tell the community that Chuck gave me this, and that would give him honor and prestige. It had nothing to do with how we feel about each other. It's all about reciprocity. But Paul says thank you. He's warm towards the Philippians. Remember, receiving a gift meant receiving a debt to be paid, and Christianity literally changed how people relate to each other. We just take it for granted, but this is a very new thing. But Paul praises them for their gift, not because of the practical nature. He avoids that pitfall. So rather than saying, thank you for the gift, it really helped me buy these things, or it really helped me because I was hungry. He avoids that pitfall. But he, he does say, because you were generous, you were actually giving a gift of worship to God. And that is why when describing their generosity in verse 18, in fact, if you have your Bible, you can check it out, Paul uses the language for their gift of him as being a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He uses sacrifice worship language. And what he's doing is he's praising the Philippians in their generosity to him. He's saying, you are actually giving worship to God. You're showing thanksgiving to God. And that's, that's the one that we should be doing all things for. So part of the secret to contentment then is generosity. It's considering what we have as a resource to worship God by blessing others either by doing something kind for someone we know or love, or by using our resources to help others in need, like, like Harmony School that we talked about just, just a little bit ago. Christian generosity assumes that we're caretakers of God's resources. And when we give, when we help others, then the power of Jesus strengthens us to be content in all things. And we're free from a mentality of hoarding and ownership and we become generous stewards rather than stingy owners. After all, we who follow Jesus follow a master who didn't consider equality with God as something to even be utilized, but rather he emptied himself to rescue us. So the relationship between people and things and money, it will ever be complicated if you're feeling conflicted right now or judging yourself, just let me just put that, it will ever be complicated. And as soon as we try and tie down generosity with rules 
and metrics and how much is enough and how much is too much, as soon as we start to put figures on that for everyone else, we kind of lose the whole thing. Generosity is a matter of the heart. And if we can't grasp God's love for us and his care for us, then we are going to clutch our lives and hold them tight because that's where we're finding our security. And every one of us does it. It's just part of our human problem. It's part, and, and I think the lifelong journey of faith is learning how to do this. <laughs> like, God, do you really love me? Every passing year, I think, oh, God loves me. I, I, I receive a little bit more, and then I realize, like, I'm just scratching the surface here. There's so much I doubt about God's love for me. It is, it is hard to be generous. It is hard to receive God's love. We throw love of God talk around in our songs and our prayers and our preaching so often as it's just, and, and I, I wonder if we all think each other's like, they must all have it. How come I don't have it? They must, they all seem, they're singing these songs like, and you know what? It's hard to receive the love of God. And oftentimes I find that there's moments and times and seasons when I'm just, yeah. And then there's a lot of time when I'm like, I'm the outside looking in. I just want to normalize that feeling for you. That's the human experience. If you're you're human, that's probably your experience. And that's okay. Like God, he really does love you. Even though. It's hard to receive God's love, but that's what Paul himself is growing in. And it's what he wanted to encourage the Philippians to live into. And it's what Jesus invites us into. Again, hear me. Paul is not saying, be more content. Be more generous. Like Paul, we seek the power of Jesus to endure in our circumstances so that we can be content. And like Paul, we seek to trust that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, verse 19 of this passage. Again, if you're trying to parse out what what does that need mean? God will supply all your needs. What does that mean? If you're trying to figure out like what you can get away with or how much that means, or then you're already missing the point. The context is contentment, and generosity. Paul's point is that we can be free to be generous because God will provide for us. He provides transformation of our hearts so that we can be generous. He provides for our needs on earth, often in and through other people. If you ever wonder why uh, certain communities or people are starving, it's probably because we're not doing a great job. We can yell at God all we want, but there's a glut of resources on some sides of the aisle and lack of resources on the other, and it's usually a matter of distribution. And God provides eternal security, the resurrection of the body, the hope of eternity. That's what he provides. He provides. So we aren't called to just start being content and generous. We're invited to trust in the power of Jesus and the provision of God. And when we grow in trusting God that he's actually for us, then we're free to begin to release our grip on controlling our lives as if we could. 
and on trying to hoard our resources as if they were ours in the first place. Paul concludes his letter by praising God, by sending greetings, and by blessing the church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Lord, however this message lands for us as individuals, I pray that you would touch my sisters and brothers in the way that they need your, your voice, your comfort for those who are conflicted, your, um, your nudge of encouragement for those who are on the edge of, of growing in generosity, of growing in contentment. And Lord, for those who are just flat out suffering, who are flat out struggling to see where you could be in the midst of their pain, oh God, come to their aid Oh God, make speed to save us. Oh Lord, make haste to help us. 